Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. Hey. Hello. I am here. Hi, Mom. Hi, Sam. You know, uh, in 2017, you and I sat for an interview, an episode, really, on this podcast. Um, You were really quite reluctant at the time. And once again, in trying to coordinate a little intro with you, um, you've proven to be a little reluctant. Can you tell me why is that? (laughs) You know, I'm shy. Oh, bullshit. Bullshit, you're shy. I'm shy. (laughs) (laughs) Does it make you uncomfortable? It's just, yeah, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Kind of like getting up in front of a room to speak would cause me to have sweat to my armpit, you know, from my armpit down to my (laughs) waistline. I mean, it's kind of ironic considering you were an attorney you had to speak in front of people all the time. You actually had to be convincing and persuasive in front of people all the time. Some of those people, by the way, didn't even like you. Advocating. Standing up and advocating for another person is fine with me. In fact, being a hostess is fine with me. When I have a defined role, particularly in the service of others, I'm quite comfortable going about and saying, but just you know, you you have such amazing guests on your show. I just feel like it's a real downturn for you to have to have your mom. <laughs> okay, well, let me give you a defined role. You are my mother, and right now you do not have to talk to anyone else but me. So um, for people who have not heard this episode before, I'm curious, what did you make of the conversation at the time? Oh, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, once uh, once I kind of just got into it, and of course we were present together, 
So we're having a face-to-face conversation. And uh, that's a very natural thing for you and I to do. And I I felt good about the conversation. Yeah, this is less natural because we're on a phone. And because we are in this pandemic moment, we can't see each other. How have you been holding up? Uh, I'm sure like everyone, good moments, frightening moments, surreal moments. But I would feel very foolish to complain about my situation. Um, it's made me very, very sad to see what that, what the reality is now for so many people. Uh, you know, up here, <laughs> we're in the middle of nowhere and... <laughs> our life isn't really much different except the things that we used to go do in the entertaining uh, is gone. So it's not a hardship. Have you found it difficult to stay positive? No. Interestingly, I, I remain positive even in the face of a, a fair amount of information from reliable sources that there is less and less to be positive about. But as a person who has overcome a number of kind of problems uh, and ended up, you know, right side up, okay, uh, my, my belief system is that we're going to get through this, all of us. The thing I keep coming back to with this episode, you know, it's one over the years that many people have said to me, oh, yeah, that's one of the first conversations of the podcast I ever heard. It's actually like my favorite. People all the time, strangers, um, at film festivals, someone told me some someone told me at Sundance this year, um, yeah, I've listened to like fifteen episodes, but really the one with your mom is my favorite. And it's a really strange thing to hear because I know you're great and you're great on the podcast. But I personally cannot bring myself to listen to this episode right now. (laughs) And it's not because of you. It's totally not because of you. No, I I, I can't listen to it. (laughs) Yeah. It was so spontaneous. I, I, you know, I'm shy. I feel I'm, I actually feel like scared to hear what I sounded like three years ago. Well, I imagine that what people are drawn to is not the content of the conversation, but the quality of the intimacy between the parties in the conversation. And I think over the years you have um, been able to create, you you know, that's always been your calling card, but I, I think you have come to be able to create intimate atmosphere at a fabulous level. I, I, I don't know anybody else replicating it. And there are some great podcast series out there. So I think what would embarrass you or why you're cringeworthy about going back to it, that original conversation, is that you've learned so much over the years and you've become better at your craft. And (laughs) so it's it's probably like, wait, I found this little blue journal that was like your back-in-the-day movie critique journal from like 10th or 11th grade. No. I have saved that bad boy. Oh, no. I'm going to... One day it's going to be an auction item somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to have to auction it because I'm like in massive debt. I'm sure no one's going to want that. What is in that blue journal? (laughs) I don't even 
remember. I got to find it. I have a box here, stuff, but it's in it's in some of the worst penmanship script I think I have ever seen. Uh, the, by the way, that penmanship has not gotten better at all. It's probably even worse, actually. <laughs> but it's like this little blue journal, and you've made um, notes of some film. You must have been taking it to the movies with you, and. It says Duke in the movies on the front of it. Oh my god. Oh, that's that's at once kind of endearing and also humiliating. Oh, I wait, I've got every copy of the of the Clovis Roundup with your reviews and Oh my god. So for people listening, um in high school I was a film critic uh mainly for myself, but one time I actually got a local newspaper called the Clovis Roundup, to run my reviews. And I think they ran my reviews for about four or five weeks. Um, unfortunately, our relationship, our working relationship, was kind of <laughs> acrimonious. I mean, it ended because I think they were tired of me just shitting on movies week after week. Like, I just kept I kept delivering negative reviews over and over again. And they were like, hey, can we, like... Can we get something positive here? We get it. You don't like the new Hangover movies. We understand. I, I think no. I think what they said was, you know, our readers just enjoy something happier. Even at eighteen, I was a grumpy old man. Oh, you, you were, you were really grumpy, and um, it also, you were writing, notwithstanding the, your young age, you were writing at a level that was probably difficult for their readership. And I'm just more, one too many adjectives. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, no. My reviews were like ninety percent adjectives. There were no nouns. <laughs> but you were, you know, you were ambitious. You are ambitious and resourceful. And those traits about you make me incredibly proud uh, to have been given the honor to be part of your childhood. Well, it's no mystery where that comes from and for those who want to hear more about that why don't we play the episode okay here we go hi mom hi sam (laughs) how do you feel about this Foolish. foolish. Mostly foolish. Mostly foolish. Well, that's okay. That's how I feel most of my life. So um, it's good to have you here. I will say this. I want to lead with something. We've had Pulitzer Prize uh, winners on the show, Grammy winners, I think a couple Oscar winners. They've all been a little easier to book on the show than you somehow. And I don't know how that's possible. I thought my mom would be an easy get. And it's been kind of hard. You know, I think that people really underestimate the time constraints of being a domestic goddess. <laughs> Is that what we're calling you these days? It's what I've been calling myself for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And does anyone else agree with that terminology? Oh, I, I've used it publicly all the time. Mm. It's actually quite a hit when I get around other stay-at-home moms. Do you put it on your LinkedIn as well? Domestic goddess. Domestic goddess. People hire you for that. They're like, oh, she's a goddess well. of some kind. <laughs> Well, I think it kind of describes many of my daily activities. 
<laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad you're playing the part here. Um, so, look, let's 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 not be around the bush on this. This is obviously uh, a little strange because uh, you birthed me into existence, um, and thanks for that, by the way. But I, I I do have some questions for you and things that I think we've talked about in the past, but um, is worth maybe going over again and stuff I don't know about. Okay, you know, I, I just don't know that this is going to be terribly interesting to anybody except you and me. Yeah, well, we'll let people decide. Maybe they'll, <laughs> maybe they'll like, maybe they'll be like, maybe my mom should host Talk Easy from now I, on. I think not. No, but you know. Okay. Well, but I'm going to indulge you in this, and I, I hope that we are still speaking afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. Is by the way, is that a general rule? Do you think you've indulged me throughout my lifetime? Indulged you to some degree, probably. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think I was a helicopter kind of parent or a hovering around you kind of parent, but uh, I think I have pretty much <laughs> let you autopilot. <laughs> That's probably not something I was supposed to do. It's an approach. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we'll see how the experiment works out. Mm, how did. Does that differ from the way Jan and the Q, your father and mother raised you? Well, I tried to be present, you know, to some degree. Uh, And uh, my parents are just from a different generation. Mm -hmm. And... For context, you were born in 1960, Allegan, Michigan. No, I was born in Chicago. You were born in Chicago, but you guys quickly moved out to Allegan. <clears throat> yeah, we moved to Michigan, I think, when I was around kindergarten age. Oh. Yeah. Wait, so there were years where you were living in Chicago? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we lived, well, first we lived in one of the apartments in my grandmother's building, and then we moved to the building next door. So if you can envision... You know, those alleyways in Chicago, We our building was across the alley. Mm-hmm. And then my grandmother and my Aunt Joanne and Uncle Bill and their son, it was just Billy at the time, and the twins were born shortly thereafter, lived there. My Aunt Kathy lived in one of the other apartments. And we communally kind of lived between these two buildings. And I can um, remember... You know, watching Garfield Goose in the living room with my cousin Billy and sitting at a really ugly Formica table in a kitchen with bright red chairs mm. while the women cooked. How did I go my whole life and not know that that's what happened between like ages one to six? Oh, well, uh, I, I don't really know. But, you know, they were a big family of German immigrants and um, they bought these two, these two and three flat buildings 
And then they just, like, lived there. It was, you know. So shortly thereafter, you guys do move to Michigan. Yeah, I went to school in Michigan. Right. You were the only child for a little bit. Did it feel like? Yeah, that was good for me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think I you know, probably remained sort of an only child. Mm-hmm. And then I became like an au pair, essentially. Right. Okay. <laughs> But getting into that, I mean, you uh, were asked by your mom to help out with these kids. I mean, you really, they, they needed, she needed okay, help. There's, wait, a, there's a lot of kids First of all, here. let's get on the same page. Grandma is still alive. Yes. Grandma still can hear. Yes. Grandma might hear this. I hope she will. Oh. That isn't true. <laughs> no, I mean. <laughs> That's going to make it in the edit. I'll promise you that right now. That impression of you your mom. Can, you can, you know what? Um, so maybe through my childhood eyes, it seems worse than it was. And maybe through my mother's filtered lens, it wasn't as horrible as I recall that it was. But I remember distinctly by about fifth grade thinking that I could definitely do without my uterus, that I did not want to reproduce or have children. Fifth grade, you decided, yeah, kids. Uh. Kids, not going to happen. I mean, I could iron, I could cook, I could clean, I could change diapers. You know, I and You're pretty I, versatile. Yeah, and I actually remember coming home from school, and I would have been in elementary school, got to be fifth grade, and the front door flying open, and, and my brother Dan just screaming, she, my mother going, oh, thank God you're home and handing me the baby. So it was pretty crazy. It was crazy from everything you've told me in the past. But I'm also thinking about like you at school, you weren't, you weren't doing great, right? I mean, like you, you were bespectacled and like kind of a nerd, right? I mean, is that- You mean like the picked on kid? Yeah, I was the picked on kid. You were the picked on kid. I didn't didn't have any friends and I was the picked on kid. Yeah. I was the weird kid. You were the weird kid. I was the ugly kid. Uh I was the kid in home sewn clothes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You you guys weren't doing well. I mean, it wasn't a- Yeah, no, my parents, uh, my parents always live paycheck to paycheck. Right. And having more kids probably complicated that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure it did. Were you aware of, like, your financial situation as a kid? <laughs> yeah, I was aware. I mean, you don't have to... Well, it was a rural area, and it wasn't like living in the suburbs. So, you, you know, uh, and I didn't have any friends, so I didn't really know what other people's houses looked like on the inside. But I, I just think in general, kids didn't live like they do now. I mean, the there wasn't yet full-blown marketing at children to make them feel like they just didn't have. You know, it was just very different. We had, you know, one television. You didn't you didn't really know what the rest of the world had and I didn't live in an affluent area, so it wasn't like you got to school and you could see Right. Do you remember being lonely? Lonely. No, you know, I don't I don't think I identified my situation as lonely. I didn't play sports, I didn't do any activities. I really didn't have any friends. You know, I, I went to change schools just a bunch of times as a young kid. So I you know, I did a lot of things by myself. So I I don't I don't know that I thought I was lonely. What about getting picked on? I ask because I, you know, you remember my 
fifth, sixth. I mean, I I didn't get picked on that much. I really didn't have that experience. You know, I I think that by the time I got out of elementary school, I had sort of just kind of closed down. I think it probably made me a little bit mean, you know, a little bit... um, Rough around the edges. Yeah, I I think probably. Yeah. I actually haven't pieced that together until now. It kind of makes sense. I mean, there's like, you do have some resistance to, I don't want to say people, but like you're good at um, defending yourself. And I think you built that as a kid. I mean, it makes you sense. You do it in your head in, in silence, you know. Right. Even it, when you're getting picked on, I don't think you think to fight back, particularly if you're like, you know, four feet something and a right. little wimpy kid. You, you know, it's not, especially a female, it's not um, something you're going to really argue back with. And it's not like people come up to you and actually say something. It's the laughing that you hear. It's the sense that you have that no one wants, you, you know, no one wants to pick you for you know, the baseball game or nobody wants to, <laughs> nobody wants you to share the lunch table with them. And, and, and that is hard, but eventually you just get in your head. You know, I don't really have many memories of uh, being a, a little kid. Mm-hmm. Would you say your consciousness, both in terms of the world around you, but also yourself grew when you went into high school? Because you kind of had a, well, it was a transformation act, right? Like you became, you were no longer the weird, well, here's you were what still happens. weird, but you were not. I got contact lenses. Got contact lenses, right. Yeah, I got contact lenses and all of a sudden, you know. I kind of imagine like you're the character and she's all that in high school. <laughs> well, kind of, it was kind of like that. I remember I got contact lenses, I came to school and a Cute guy that had known that I had seen, and you know, for like years and years and years, said to me, "Oh, are you new?" <laughs> I was like, "What an asshole!" What did you say to him? N- nothing. I was just like, "Whatever." I don't think we said whatever then, but you know, uh, I, you know, I wasn't having it. Were you starting to feel better about yourself at that age? I was, and you know what? I had a little boyfriend by then, and you know. process in terms of life after high school? You were thinking about college. Well, (laughs) yeah, you know, I kind of saw myself doing something a little bit different than what I wanted to do. Well, tell me. You know, than what I ended up doing, I should say. Well, you wanted to do fashion. Yeah, I, I took a lot of art classes and I liked to draw and I wanted to design clothes. And, um, I remember I, I did some drawings that were hung actually in a front, you know, window of the school in a display case. And, you know, they may not have been that good, but I, I was kind of proud they were out there. I don't really even remember what my mother said, if anything. She probably said something like, oh, he said, well, if you keep working or, you know, if you had shows promise. But my mom, you know, she was not very encouraging. 
So, you know. And that sort of deflated you? Well, that and my mother decided that I could go into fashion merchandising. And she then pretty much convinced me that she would get me enrolled into a fashion merchandising college, which I went to for one semester. Not even one semester, about a month into it before I quit. Because fashion merchandising seemed more practical or? Well, I I, I guess, you know, first of all, you're not getting a degree in it. It's not a four-year school. You're getting some kind of two-year. And you know what? Probably I would have loved it. I mean, being a buyer for a store or something is probably great fun. But um, I, I didn't like where I was going to school. And I can't even, it was somewhere near Detroit. And, it uh, seems like you were pretty easily persuaded, though, by, by your mom. Um, it was a plan, you know, and no other plan had been offered. And it's not like my folks were going to be able to pay for college. And I applied for loan money, and I think I got some grant money. And I went to the school, and I was really unhappy there. And I brought myself home, mm-hmm. I mean, which <clears throat> didn't make them happy. And then I enrolled at Western Michigan and went to school. Mm. Was that good to move out of the house and have a new life at Western? It, it was. My first semester at Western, I commuted from home, and then the next year I moved to the dorms, and it was a blast. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Did you feel like some amount of freedom at that point? You know, you, you. I think when you move away, in order to emancipate from your childhood, you create your own circle of friends and you start to feel like, oh, this is who I'm going to be now that I'm growing up, now that I'm away from home. And, you know, this was before cell phones. So, you know, maybe you called home every couple of weeks. You know, we, we shared a telephone in a dorm suite. So, you know, it's not like there was that tether the way, you know, I can see the kids now kind of get tethered to parents. But so what else happened in college? You said you were yeah, discovering you know, yourself. I mean, what was part of that? I, you know what? I really enjoyed college. I enjoyed, um, you know, I had I worked at night. You were a good student. I was a good student. Um, I was able to get scholarship and grant money, and um, college was good. And I, um, you, you know what? I would say, you know, back to your earlier question, I really didn't know how poor we were until I went to college. Then I understood that it was really tough for my parents. What made you understand that? Well, what particularly made me understand that was one of the a friend that I had and also my roommate all came from the wealthier suburbs of Detroit, which I knew nothing about. You know, talk about living in, sort of in a weird country vacuum. And so we went to a friend's house for New Year's. And it was Bloomfield Hills. And we started driving in, and these houses are, like, gigantic. And it was just crazy ass. I mean, <laughs> I, I had no idea, <laughs> just none. And, um, and it seemed like everybody at school came from one of the suburbs of Detroit. And it was then that I—it um, was pretty humbling. It was humbling, but I'm also interested, did you, did you look at that and think— yeah, that's what I want. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I also didn't, you know, I don't think that those friends at that time had any idea what I did or didn't come from. Um, so You didn't make that publicly? No, I didn't want, I did, certainly didn't want to discuss it. I mean, 
No. And I think there's always a certain amount of embarrassment, you know, uh, from... Um, having less? Yeah, from having less. Did you feel comfortable with them? Sure. Yeah, you know, it didn't affect the friendship. Um, and because you're living this dorm life, so it's not like you're all going to go to a restaurant for dinner. We were eating in the dorms or we were ordering pizza or we're going to a keg party. So it wasn't like... In a way, it's kind of a great equalizer. Yeah, it was a great equalizer because nobody knew, you know, it was not like, you know, the bill came and it was $400 and I didn't have my share of it. I think the the difference was when spring break came and all of my friends were like, hey, we're going to Florida. You want to drive down with us? Da, 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 da. And I knew that over spring break, um, I would be wor- hustling and working my job. And there were they would leave the dorms open for part of it. So I would stay in the dorms. and um, By yourself. Well, there were other people kind of like me. I had an on-campus job, and then I waited tables at night and... Um, did that, and if they closed up the dorm for any segment of it, part of Christmas would be closed. I would, um, I, I had stayed one time with my dad, and I think I might have stayed with my mom during that other portion of it and went to work. When you're 20, <clears throat> 21, like busting your ass, because you've talked about, we've discussed this before, where you're going to school and you're working on, I mean, the work ethic is pretty incredible. Is Do you have any of the anxiety about, Shit, I gotta put my life together by like the time I'm done with college. No, oh God, no. I mean, um, is that is that just a is you a know? New, I, is that a new problem for this generation, or is that something okay, that your so peers? Okay, so seriously, you know, it's not like I even knew what I wanted to be when I was at college. It was so different than you know. You'd get to college, you'd take a bunch of different classes. Not people weren't already like I'm gonna be a. I mean, we've become like a really weird society like that. People went to college still to like to figure be exposed, it out. to be exposed to ideas, you know, and you, you started in one place. Like I started out, this this will make you like laugh, but I started out in early childhood education. Mm. Okay. And, and, I, and it reinforced for me the thing that, you know, my favorite phrase, not my favorite, but, you know, kind of one of my signature phrases, which is I don't really like other people's children. <laughs> and so. The general rule. So when did law become something that you were feeling? Um, you know, when I got really interested, I, well, I, I went into psychology and sociology, and I liked the political science classes, and um, I just became, you know, I don't really think that I thought about law school until my senior year of, of college. college. So um, I just moved away from education and, you know, got into other courses. I liked college. So senior year of college, you're like, okay, I can go to law school, and that seems like a path. Okay, so I'm not going to lie. You know, um, my grandfather, my mom's dad, would often talk about, you know, I watched Perry Mason as a kid and how cool it was to be a lawyer. And he kind of had brought that up, but, I, you know, I, I wasn't certain that that was something I wanted to do. And it turned out that one of my regular restaurant clients was a judge in Kalamazoo. And he was this judge. He'd come in by himself all the time. Once a week, I would wait on him. And he was a really, really great guy. And he would ask me what I was studying. And, you know, he was probably a regular for a year and a half. And he said, I think you should meet my daughter. She is the dean of 
uh, Cooley Law School. And she was the first African-American female dean in the United States. And so he brought her in, and we kind of had a conversation. Um, and then I followed up with her, and I told her that I just really didn't want to move to Detroit, that I was really wanting to go to Chicago. And so she gave me names and put me in touch with some schools and some individuals there, and she was real helpful. And that's when I... So it was really kind of, you know, the fostering of strangers, I guess. Mm. I don't know. So you moved to Chicago and you got into John Marshall. Well, I moved to Chicago. What <clears> year is that? Okay, I don't know. Whenever I graduated from college, I don't know, 80, I don't know. 82, 83? Something like that. I graduated from law school in 87. Okay. So, so I took a year off between college and law school. So 83. 83, you moved to Chicago. Yeah. You're 23. Yeah. You have not a lot of money. No, you know what I did was um, I knew that I wanted to move. So I I had like a couple of friends, not real close, but people I'd waited tables with. And one friend, Tom, um, had an apartment there. And I drove into the city. We walked around and I got the reader and I looked for apartments. And I found a little studio. I knew that if I had at least three months of savings in the bank to pay for that studio, that I would find a waiting tables job in the city. I mean, it just... I'm waiting tables all over the place in Kalamazoo. I can definitely get work in Chicago. So my, I figured, you know, I'm going to get there. I'll work, and then I'll apply for school for the next year. And, you know, what's the worst that can happen? If, if three months I don't have a job, then I guess I have to move, you know, back to my mother or something. But mm-hmm. um, that didn't happen. I got there. I had a little studio apartment. And I think within about three weeks I had two jobs. And I made a, I made a circle of women friends. You know, there were a lot of um, waiters and waitresses doing the same thing, hustling, going to school during the day, in graduate school, artists, people that were just doing their own thing, models. And, and I would say that that was the funnest part of my young adulthood. It was fun? Those years. Oh, God, yes. It was crazy-ass fun. <laughs> Why was it so fun? Well, I wasn't going to school. So this is the first time that I can work, stay out until God knows when with friends. Was there a lot of dancing back then? What? A lot of dancing back then? Oh, a lot of dancing. Yeah. It was really, you know what? We would have fun because we were right down near Rush Street when it was still sort of a thing. And then. This is like the height of disco, too. No, disco is kind of going away. Really? It's mid Yeah, well, it's still there, but no, you know. What's being played? But there were all kinds of dance places to go dancing, like um, Neo and like all these places in Chicago that didn't really get going to like midnight, one in the morning. Well, restaurant closed up, 11 o'clock, boom, we would all get dressed, leave the restaurant, and go on and stay out till 3 or 4 in the morning, go get some eggs, go home, sleep it off, maybe meet at the beach in the day, get a little tan, go to the, go back to the restaurant, do it all again every night. It was fun. That's a nice life. You know what? But I was hustling because sometimes I had to work a double. So, you know, then I'd have to go home a little earlier because I would have to be at the restaurant like 10 Mm a.m. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from that you're able to, just make it work, whatever, whatever well, situation. What, 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 what is the choice going to be? You know, I, where does it come from? I think it comes from not having a safety net. 
quite frankly. You know, I, I left home. My parents, when I went to college, my parents gave me zero money. I, I don't mean like only a few thousand dollars. Zero, zero money, no car. I had to buy my own car. Zero money, no car, n- no nothing. Just like, well, you know, and they they really wished well for me. Have a good life. They gave you a lot you know of what? wishes. No, I got light blue Samsonite luggage, a whole set of it. <laughs> There you go. Nothing says you, you've you launched like your own set of luggage. <laughs> so there's no safety net. No safety net. So it's like you're going to make it or what are you going to do? I mean, there just wasn't an alternative. But you also, I think there's something to recognize here, which is that you clearly had um, confidence in yourself. A lot of people did not have safety nets that you grew up with. And a lot of those people did not move away. They stayed in Allegan. No, you know, that was never going to be an option for me. No, that was that was never going to be an option. And, and I can tell you the moment of reckoning. I had been dating somebody my senior year, and I really even like this guy that much. This college or high school? This is high school. And oh, this guy, he, he, he was out of school a year ahead of me. So he takes me, picks me up. I've got something to show you. He's all surprised, Mr. You know, I thought he was nice enough, but, you know, he's not a serious thing. He pulls up at this trailer. And I'm, like, thinking, okay, well, maybe somebody lives here, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I'm going to rent this. And he's looking at me like, I'm going to rent this. Do you want in? For us. And, and, okay. (laughs) And it was that moment in my head when I thought, there's no fucking way. I mean, I'm like, I'm out of here. Okay. He's a real nice guy. He had a job at a factory. He's making some money. And I thought, okay, no, 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 no. This is not, I am not having the life where I move into that trailer and uh, go to community college and stay in Allegan. No, you know what? I don't know then that I knew exactly where I was going, but I knew I wasn't staying. You had an instinct. Yeah, I had an instinct. I'm I'm out of here. And that was really even before I went to college. Once I went to college, I knew, like, I wouldn't be going back, mm-hmm. that that was not going to be an option for me. And um, Chicago seemed achievable because I had a car to get there. I knew somebody there. And it didn't entail the kind of money that, like, how would I move to New York? I mean, because my car was kind of crappy. I had a hole in the back seat, and <laughs> you drove it, and dirt flew up in it. And But I've just been lucky. I, I think part of it was luck, and part of it is, you know, if you're that age and you're just on your own, um, there's no going back. I mean, by that point, I lived away from home for three, four years. I mean, I'm not I wasn't the kid who went back home in the summer. I rented apartments in the summer in college, you know, took somebody's spot in an apartment and then rented my own apartment. I don't know. At what point in law school were you feeling like, okay, I can do this. This is is the job. Oh, the first year of law school. Right away. Oh, yeah. I loved law school. And the people around? I had fun with the people in law school. It was a good time. You know, everybody's nervous. Everybody's doing the same thing. Did you feel out of your depths at all? No. Mm-mm. No, kind of, I did really well. It's kind of amazing. 
Yeah, I got an I got an academic scholarship and I got a grant and I made law review and I was in the top of my class. So no. Mm-hmm. While you're in law school, you're also a clerk somewhere, right? Um, well, I, I continued to wait tables, and then you know I had a, a boyfriend, which I think was a big part of it. You know, I had sort of this grown-up life, and he and the guy that I was my boyfriend. Um, was an attorney. And so, you know, like I'm already seeing what that life will be like. And what that looks like. Yeah. I, I you know, I'd crossed over. No, I, you know. Mm. The one thing you mentioned uh, was that besides you working hard, you also had good luck. Oh, yeah. And uh, I know we've discussed this in the past, but could you go into the story about how you managed to pay? For law school and that and that back end of it, where it got particularly hard, and you had oh oh yeah yeah oh um well you know I had a series of kind of like sad things kind of come about uh, right into my last year of law school. Um, You're 26. Yeah, whatever I was. So boyfriend and I that had been sharing an apartment it. It got to the place where it really wasn't working, and I took a studio apartment in probably the nastiest, grossest building. I mean, it was just nasty. And and so I had this really depressing, horrible apartment. But before that, well, why wasn't it working? It, you know, there were a lot of reasons, but, you know, it, it wasn't working. And, you know, there's a point where you just can't live with somebody, you know, um, that you're, there isn't a relationship in. So um, I, we actually both, the lease was up or something. He was going to move one place and I was looking for something and I couldn't find a shared arrangement. So I ended up going to get a little studio, which probably was the best, but it was really a nasty studio. Where was it? Oh, it was on Clark Street in an old crappy building. Um, kind of a cool area. Yeah, this building was gross. But you know what? I knew it was temporary. So I was doing that, and I had a job at a at a restaurant that I kind of liked, and they laid me off. They laid off a bunch of waiters, and so I then I was scrambling for work, and I was doing some catering, and my girlfriend got me a job at a bar she worked at, and I hated working in a bar. And it just, like, I was really scrambling for money. And it had come to the point where I needed, I owed a little bit yet on my fall tuition, and it was time to enroll in my last semester of school, and I didn't have the money. I just didn't have the money. And I didn't know where I was going to get it. I mean, you know, it's not like I could, I didn't have anybody to ask for it, and I didn't, I really, because I had bought, gotten into that apartment, I, I just and needed a security deposit and whatnot. I just didn't have any money. And uh, I, I remember being incredibly upset and depressed about the whole thing. And my mother came into town with a friend of hers, and she said to me, well, I think that you should just take a semester off school, go back to work, and then finish next year. And I'm looking at right near the last semester of school, and I just told her, I can't do that. You know, if I walk away, I knew that if I walked away, I would never come back and finish. And um, my Aunt Cher, who isn't really our aunt, said to me, 
you have everything you need. You just need to believe that. And and then I guess those were good words. But, you know, at that moment, I just was so upset. And I remember working that bartending or bar back job or whatever really late. And I'd come into the ladies' room at school, and I was just exhausted. I was I was sobbing. I was in the ladies' bathroom crying. And a professor, Anne Lucine, knocked on the door and she said, what's going on? And it was right before Christmas break. And I just, I, I was super, super embarrassed because I had had her as a teacher contracts. And <clears throat> she knew who I was because she knew I was on, went to school on scholarship and had a grant and I just said, you know, I can't pay off my fall bill, so I can't register for spring, and I don't know where the money's going to come from, and I just don't have it. And she said, you know, this isn't going to do. And she had me come to her office, and then she left, and then she took me into the dean, and the dean of the law school sat me down and said, you know, you've worked hard, and... We'll figure this out. And he wrote me a check and handed me a check for like $1,000, which was a gigantic sum of money for me at that time. And he said the school, you know, the, the school would help, would assist me. But, you know, that check was written on that guy's account. Dean Schrager. And I said, I don't need this much. I, I think I only needed like six or $700, if you could imagine not having a source for that amount of money. And he said, I think you should take the rest of the money and go home and see your family for Christmas. And I did. I'm glad I did because it was the last time I saw my grandmother. She died shortly after that. So, there you are, Leonard Schrager. Kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing. It's interesting to think about uh, the <laughs> the alternate timeline. I mean, if that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, he did that, and I went home, and I came back, and my grandma died, and it was a really, really dark horrible winter in Chicago and a dark, horrible winter in my life. And I just toughed it out and I graduated. And that was that. And then I continued to look for work. And then I started practicing law and the, the you know, um, I had friends who were lawyers and, you know, did some clerking for them. And then when I got sworn in, I just started going to court for them and then I, you know, one thing led to another, and ultimately I ended up at a bigger firm, and it all worked out. Do you meet my dad? Uh, when I'm working at a bigger firm. Can, can you tell me about the first 
time you met him? No, I really can't. <laughs> Why is that? Oh, well, we worked together. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't really remember. I mean, you know, we were friendly. We worked together. That's not exactly how it works. You don't get to say, I can't, and then I don't remember. Well, you know, we worked together. And he was a lot younger and, or is a lot younger. And um, Six years. Yeah, he, he had a part-time job at our firm. Mm-hmm. What was the first interaction? You know, I don't think it was an interaction at work. I think that I was out and about and your dad was, your dad had been a bouncer at a number of nightclubs around Chicago. And I think my girlfriend and I were out and somewhere and he was there and we all just (laughs) probably... Danced and, you know, we were just out. I don't know. And then it just kind of morphed. I don't know. It was fun. I mean, that that sounds like a nice, like, thing that probably wouldn't happen nowadays where you just kind of, like, meet someone dancing at a bar. But it sounds... Uh, well, you common. know, I, like, I knew who he was right. from work. And I think... You knew you were attracted to him. Yeah. He was a lot of fun. He was really a lot of fun. He still is fun. Well, I don't know that to be true, but I'll take your word for it. He's six years younger, so he's like 23, right? And you're 29? Yeah, and I'm an attorney, and he's a a summer law clerk, and, you know, it probably didn't go over real big at my workplace. Well, sure. Yeah, and I might have subsequently gotten fired, but, you know. Is that what happened? (laughs) Yeah. They found out. That's not what they said. Right. But, yeah, you know, and that that didn't go over real well, I guess. It was part of many things, but I was already applying at other firms. I just, you know, the firm wasn't for me. I wanted to get into a smaller firm that didn't have the same kind of cultural atmosphere. So that's, you know. Um, At what point did you realize this was not just like a person you were going to casually date. What kind of a question is that? I I don't remember. Well, did you think about, oh, this is getting serious. Oh, this is something. (sighs) You know, I wish that I would have given a lot more thought to a good many things in my life. But sometimes things just go where they're going. Mm -hmm. No, I, I don't remember any aha kind of moment, I you know. Was the aha moment when you realized you were pregnant with me? <laughs> oh, no, I mean. It's okay if it was. No, that wasn't the, we were married before I got pregnant, so I know that wasn't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think you're skipping over the before, you you had, from high school onward, you had, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, you had pretty consistently had a boyfriend. That was always oh, part of the equation. Sure. So, you know, I mean, there was also periods of time where I had several boyfriends, you know, that were, right. you know, that I dated. But, um, yeah, you know. I guess I just want to know, and I know this is a little uncomfortable, but I want to know, like, 
at what point did you think to yourself, I'm going to marry this person. This is not just another person I'm dating. Huh. You know, I, I wish I had a beautiful, profound kind of answer for you, but I, you know, I, I don't have one. I'm sorry to say. I don't, it just kind of evolved. I mean, we, we were... He was romantic, right? He was romantic. We were sharing a place. It just kind of... I think he was more interested in getting married than I was, you know, and... Uh, Despite you being the older person. Yeah. And so then what happened when you had me? No. Oh. Do, do you remember the whole pregnancy thing? Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. No. You were so staunchly opposed to having kids at that Oh, point. no, but I was really excited to have you. Yeah, you were adorable. The pregnancy was adorable. Oh, no, no, it was a tough pregnancy, but you were adorable. And I was born a month early, wasn't I? Yeah, you were a real preemie. And I was in the hospital for several weeks before you were born. And, uh, yeah, you were tiny. You were really tiny, like three pounds. Do you have any early memories of, like, that day that I was born? Or oh, the yeah. Subsequent? Yeah, so, you know, it was an emergency C-section, and... I wanted to keep you in the room with me, and, you know, they wanted me to get rest. So every time I'd fall asleep, I'd wake up, and you weren't there. So I'd walk with my IV in my arm, walk down to the, like, little area where they had the babies, and I'd wheel you back to my room. And and I finally just, like, had a hiss, and, like, you got to leave them in here all the time. So... That's where the uh, codependency started. <laughs> That's where it began. <laughs> well, the other thing was that the doctor had told me, because you were so small that your weight was an issue and that if I couldn't breastfeed you, if I couldn't get you to be fed that way, that you would be staying and I would be departing. I wasn't having that. So um, every two hours I was feeding you and you did well. And so the guy was like, okay. But I had to have a a nurse come to the house every day because you still were, you were pretty... Little, and they had to monitor you. Was I interfering with um, your career at that point? I mean, you were just starting to get going as a lawyer. Well, not just starting. No, you know what? I had a nice um, gig at that point. They were very understanding. They knew I was coming back, and I did co- go back to that job. No, I, you know, I, I got three months off, so I was with you, and then your dad was going to school, so he had days he could be with you, and we, we figured it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know this is not something you love discussing, but you guys did split before I was, before my one-year-old birthday, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, at what point did you think to yourself, oh, this is probably not? I knew early on that it wasn't working. And I also knew that I adored you, just adored you. And, like, you were, like, as much fun as I had in my 20s with my friends, you were the focus of my life at that point. And um, I just adored you. And I also felt... You guys were just in radically different spots. We were in very different places in our life, and it caused a lot of problems for us. And I also felt that if you never knew what it was to have mom and dad there, if it always was dad's house, mom's house, that 
you would probably, that, that would be, you wouldn't have a loss then. It would be what you would grow up knowing. And I can remember later on, because you always had that, that um, the first time, when you became friends with Joe Navarro, remember the Navarros? Yeah. <laughs> you went to their house and you said something like, oh, wow, you... Your your dad lives here too. Like you just <laughs> like you didn't get it. Like everybody you knew, because all of Mark's kids lived with their mom and then came to visit their dad, and you went to your dad's. So like it hadn't occurred to you that kids out there, there were some kids whose parents actually lived in the same house. You didn't know. It was like a big funny statement that you made. Yeah, I, I well, I, <laughs> you didn't know. It, it's true. I did not know. <laughs> I was not even one. I mean, I just thought. We have two Christmases. I thought yeah, that was, that was know, just like, part of it. Well, you didn't know that there were any kids who had it differently, which is, I, and I guess. It seemed to be kind of your plan. It seemed well, to, it you know what? Out. I think that's better than I used to have this and now it's messed up. Right. So that was a conscious choice on your part. Yeah. You realized that you could have, like many people, probably been in a marriage that wasn't working for a few years. See if it worked and then it probably wouldn't have worked out. But you guys cut the cord quick. I mean, you you both made that decision. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a horrible thing. I think we both were right. kind of new. I mean, you know, I mean, we continued to share time with you and to communicate. And um, so, no, you know, I, it was a, a natural sort of the right thing to do ultimately. from the city into the suburbs and and thinking about I was thinking about it last night and with some context it's like that is you really transitioning into motherhood I mean you had Parker uh, soon after you, we bought that house in the suburbs no we built it actually we, while we, Parker yeah, while I was it. pregnant with Parker right. so I mean I remember as a kid I had the, I have these vague memories as a kid in the basement and like we're looking at the floor plan of the house and it's yeah. all white. The house is all white. Cause I had, it was well, just, it's drywall at that point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember like, oh, this is going to be... Gigantic. Gigantic and our home. But I'm just thinking, did you have any concessions about putting your career, which was doing well, in the back seat and also really changing your location? I mean, you were a city person. You still are a city person. Yeah, you know, the, um, I, the good news from that location was that when it wasn't peak rush hour time, you could literally drive downtown within 20, 30 minutes and be at your destination. So everything I liked to do in the city, 
you know, everything from getting my hair cut to getting my nails done, I did, went downtown for. Um, and at that point, I think I had a few cases after Parker was born. And then after that, I was home. And I liked it. I mean, it was clear. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I bought into it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed what I was doing. So You bought into it. Yeah, I bought into it. You know, this whole idea that um, because there were a lot of women who stayed home out there and, you know, you just, okay, this is this is what I'm doing now. And I liked it. I loved doing things around that house and decorating. And you know what? I, I, I enjoyed that. We I felt it was fun. It seems you've been particularly good throughout your life at accepting what you're doing now. Accepting and adapting. Accepting and adapting. Because you know what? Especially at this age and the things that are ahead, acceptance and adaptation are really all there is. There's no control. There's some control. But I'm way out here on the conveyor belt. (laughs) The end is coming. Acceptance and adaptation are all that remain. You're 56, not 96. I'm 56. Yeah, I'm 56. Though to be fair, for people listening, you know, you seem to always have your issues <laughs> with death. I think that's been a constant. Well, yeah, and and I have to say that you, like you know that when I look at the when I look at the obituaries, which I particularly like to do, um, I always do a quick scan for age, ages born, ages present, mm-hmm. and causes of death. And you know, I still feel like okay, I'm not right there. I think it's gonna. It must be much much scarier when you're about seventy and you open the paper because it's like, did you dodge the bullet? Did you? I don't know. But um, the line, uh, I like to read the obituaries, <laughs> is uh, fairly uncommon. Oh, obituaries are fascinating to read. I I think they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. Oh no, sure, I, I they're okay. I'm not, like, psyched to read the obituary page. I'm not like, hey, please give me the New York Times. I just want the obituary page. Oh, that's page. A great. You know, I, I just think it's very interesting. I don't know. I don't know why. But that worries you. It, well, no, it doesn't worry me. It is on the horizon. And, I mean, it, be, it feels much more on the horizon at 56 than it does at 30. Because you can look at that. When you're 30, you're still thinking, I've got more to live than I've already done. At my age, those numbers don't pan out. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a numbers game. It's a numbers game. We could spend hours. Yeah, how how fast did did the last 10 years go for you? How fast did the last two years go for you? Okay, and let me just tell you that maybe... Maybe it isn't the the same for everyone, but I find that it goes quicker and quicker. The years move faster as you get older. Yeah. Oh, I I think uh, I can't even tell the last three or four years apart. I mean, they've gone by so quick. Yeah. Okay. So, you know. Time just seems to evaporate, you know. Yeah. And. 
it's scary already. I mean, I, I already have this at 22. Well, I probably watched Annie Hall too many times, honestly. <laughs> well, you know, I think um, I think it's too bad you don't like to run or walk or do something out that gets you really outside every day by yourself. Because sort of you, I get this thing mm-hmm. like today on my run where you look around and, you know, you always see things, but it's like you really see and you really realize, oh, I'm really here. I'm breathing. I'm alive. This is really good. Today is really good. This is a, and I like when I have those kind of moments. And I also think to myself in those moments, how grateful I am for everything. And that kind of gratitude allows me somewhere in my head to go, if this was it, you know, if I come off this path and get hit by, you know, folks drunk from a vineyard and I die on this road, I've had a good life. And I love feeling that kind of gratitude for my life. And there is something about being outside. And, and, and I think particularly when you're alone in solitude, somewhere beautiful, disconnected from the computer and your phone and whatever, those little moments like that, you know, they stick with me. Is that why you started running at a young age? I mean, you've you've been you've how many marathons did you run? Oh gosh, I don't know, eight or nine. Um, I I like to run. Yeah, you know, running is very long distance running. You just and I never really liked to run with other people. You know, you, those many hours, you just you, you get into your head and then you just get really really out of your head. It's just about breathing. And then it's kind of your daydreaming, and then you're kind of just disconnected from your body. And I think anybody that does some kind of sport or whatever, you know, I think it's just one of those things. We have some distance now from, you know, I remember you running a lot in my childhood. And uh, I, I'm thinking about that and, and growing up. And now that we have some distance from all of it, I want to know what what was the biggest challenge of of raising me. Hmm. The biggest challenge of raising you, besides the Xbox, <laughs> um, which which you know that did not happen until sixth or seventh grade. Well, there's a learning curve with parenting, and sadly, the firstborn <laughs> comes at the front end of that curve and mm-hmm. probably the gets, pan- the, gets the worst of the pa- that the parent has to offer. And This is the pancake theory. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, you know, first pancake, that's right. It doesn't always turn out. But you did. But, I mean, so <laughs> the challenge. You know, well, I'm sitting right here. I know. The challenge was that. I think the challenge with you is that you're really kind of tapped into my emotions. And that may be a problem for you. And it's probably not totally healthy um, because you, you would sort of then probably take them on. So if I was feeling upset, you were probably feeling it. And, um, and the fact that we we're really close, um, there was probably some kind of transference that shouldn't have been there that a smarter kind of parent would have said, 
he needs to be in therapy <laughs> um, or I need to be in therapy, which, you know, ultimately we both ended up there. But um, so, so the challenge with you is that is that you're really tapped into how I feel. And so it's difficult for me to kind of keep you in in the child mode, like you should only know these things and, you know. Um, but it proved to be the opposite. I mean, I, I knew a lot of things. Yeah, you knew a lot of things, and I, I'm sorry that you did. A better parent would have probably tried to shelter you more, but... I think there's a positive reading and a negative reading, and I and I think part of the positive is, you know, um, some understanding of. Well, yeah, you have a lot of understanding of a lot of kind of dynamics because you got a ringside seat, and <laughs> and you know. You know what? Everything is a learning curve, and I hope that you don't have to make the mistakes I did. And at the same time, I hope I didn't leave or create some scar tissue on you that prevents you from being fully open and present with another soul. Because... You know, that's kind of all there really is. You seem good at that. You seem to be I've a- learned. You know, I'm I I'm resilient. And I'm also good. I've learned to be good about being careful what I wish for. Because Inevitably, it's been my experience that when you really wish for something, when something is your truest desire, it will manifest. You'll do the things to make that thing happen. I think you need to to love yourself and then wish for things that will continue to foster your love for yourself. Because... Uh, you know, and know yourself well. But, you know, I can't imagine that I could have been with the same person from point A to point B. So, you know, I'm happy to be where I'm at. I I, I worry that, hmm, well, you'll be a tough partner for somebody. Somebody is, there'll be more than one. You know, you, maybe you won't get married repeatedly, but. Why tough? <laughs> Why tough? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, Sam. Why tough? <laughs> Duh. Hey, you know what? I'm your mom. I'm not, not Yoda. I don't know why the fuck tough, just because you are. <laughs> You use the word. I'm just asking about it. Well, because you know how you are. But, but you're very gentle and you're very, you know, you're, you're kind. Um, I just, you know, you might want to chill on the cynicism or not, but um, just be aware. You think I'm cynical? Sometimes. But 
people who don't ever have hurt or pain in relationships have never really opened themselves up. You know, I mean, whether it works out or not, no relationship comes without pain. So either you're going to be a complete loner as a person or you're going to endure some pain. It's just the price of admission. So you're saying I should probably... You're very passionate. You're very passionate about many things and you're... um, But maybe, you know, I should endure some pain a little bit. You got to endure some pain. That's just all there is to it. That's good. I was hoping we get to this point in the podcast where you're giving me sort of advice about romance. Oh, yeah, because God knows. (laughs) God knows. (laughs) I am nothing if not, you know, the relationship guru. (laughs) The only other thing I wanted to hit on, um, it's not surprising that you're you're giving this to me, this information and and the... um, the warmth and advice about falling in love. I mean, something I wrote down here last night. Uh, you know, I wrote this down. I emphasized it. I mean, you throughout my life, you've had... Uh, God. <laughs> it's really hard. Oh. You've basically, you've just been able to do anything for me. Oh, no. You have, I mean. No, do you remember when you were in the hospital a couple years ago and you wanted some damn dinner, okay, and the cafeteria closed and they were taking you away for testing and I didn't want to leave the hospital when, when you were having the test because I was very anxious and nervous, but you were hungry and I scurried around and they were like, well, because you were in some like place they were holding you and they didn't have a cafeteria and it was a Sunday night, we're in the middle of nowhere. And you came out and you said, did you get me some dinner? And I said, no, but now that you're out, I'll go get you. What would you like? And you were furious. And you said, do I have to do everything for myself? And I remember going to the car, just crying and crying and feeling so guilty. And I came back with like 10 microwavable meals and like took them into the nurse's station and heated them up. But um, (laughs) no, so I, I, I failed you on that particular occasion. You know, it's kind of like we were talking about your college, and the first thing you mentioned is the queue coming. And the first thing when I say you do anything for me is the one instance in the last few years where I may have been mildly upset. I do remember getting Well, there was also the instance, you know, there was the time. I I think it might have been your first year at college. When you told me it, it was difficult to understand for you to really accept that you were so much smarter than your parents, like that was hard for you. <laughs> That's actually the language you used. <laughs> Something like that. Like, you know, and I just thought, okay, well, maybe he doesn't mean that like that. I don't know. But you made some kind of, I don't know. Maybe it's because... I was probably just angry about something. I don't, probably. I don't think it was yeah, like, that could, that hi, been. Mom, good to see you. By the way, I'm smarter than you. No, no, no. It, it, it came was. out, it, it, it was, I forget how it came out. And I, I thought, well, you know, that might actually be true, you, you, you know, because you were doing so well, so young, so quickly. And, yeah. The point stands. I mean, I, I have to, I'm thinking about it. 
I finished writing down this short list of stuff I wanted to talk about. and I was, Stuff that I've been able to do stuff for you. And the thing is, I fell asleep, and then I woke up, and I was like, oh, one thing I have to add, and you can see here, it's on the side. What's it say? It says, do anything for me. And you really, If I could do anything for you. Hmm. No, but the thing is, you have, and I, and I want to know... How? You'll have your own kid and you'll answer that question for yourself. How not? That's what it is. It's not every parent. No, it's not every parent. But um, I, I think every parent who is able to, does with it. And I think every parent does to the degree that they can. Um, It's hard for me to imagine that, you know, parents don't bring whatever gifts they have to their kids, you know. It's not just things, you know, whatever they have. You know, I I failed you in some ways. I I admit, I, I don't like Little League Baseball. Okay, I was so <laughs> grateful the dad that the daddies all like little league because you know I could scoot out of that. And it could be that you were kind of a pill at the little league games. Yeah, but <laughs> and there was a time that I made you late for the basketball game and we like screamed at each other the entire way in the car. Yeah, but you know, those instances aside, you know. I think you did a good job. Oh, thank you. You've had a strange childhood. Strange and magnificent and interesting. And we got here, you know? I've never had any real great big career success. And I feel kind of bad about that. I guess I would like maybe to still do that before I leave this planet. But I wake up and I feel happy. Content. Mm. All the people that I love are still alive and good, and I feel really grateful for you. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this, Mom. You're welcome. our show special thanks this week to my mother uh this podcast would literally not be possible without her is that fair to say no i i think it certainly could be very possible for it to exist without me but i am delighted that you have included me in your world (laughs) i'm glad on this special quarantine mother's day that you brought me into this world uh, in the first place. Thanks. Anything else? Well, you can find and subscribe to Talk Easy on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, 
and wherever you do your listening. Um, you can also follow this show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. You can also drop us a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. This show would not be possible each week without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Associate producer, Nikki Spina. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. I miss Ian. Hi, Ian. How are you? <laughs> Ian's doing all right. Uh, we'll have to forward him this episode. Uh, who else we got? Our social media is by Beja Washington. Music by Dylan Peck and Jin Singh. Our editors are Andre Lin and Kat Owen. Our engineer is Tim Moore. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reback. Mom, thank you so much for doing this. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Have a good Mother's Day. Call your mothers, call your grandparents. For the love of God, they want to hear from you more than you probably call them. I think that's definitely true for you and I, right? I, I think we talk pretty often. Okay, you're like, okay, I've had enough of you, Sam. Please shut the <laughs> hell up. Mom, thank you so much for doing this. Next Sunday is with Ted Danson. Until then, have a safe week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.